You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It's not uncommon to hear a high-level executive sort of tell a mid-level IT person, you know, that's great for everybody else, but not for me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello there, Joe. Hi, Dave. Later in the show, Carol Terrio returns, and she speaks with Matthew Gartner from Mimecast about some of the threats that they've been seeing. And we are back. Joe, before we get into our stories this week, we've got some follow-up. We actually had a couple of listeners write in in response to a passing reference we made about the Can You Hear Me scam. Yes, I believe that was from the interview with Shannon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so for those who aren't familiar with it, the Can You Hear Me scam is where someone calls you and they say, Can You Hear Me? And allegedly that's so that they can get a recording of you saying yes which they then use to authorize purchases on your credit card or so on and so forth. Right. Well, it turns out that this one is actually unproven. And uh, the folks over at Snopes did some investigating, and they couldn't find any instances of anyone actually falling victim of it. Hmm. They also said that in order to use this whole yes thing, that they would already have to have lots of information about you anyway. And that's good because there's not a lot of information about people out on the web, right, Dave? (laughs) Well, yeah, but the point (laughs) is that, you know, banks and so forth, they don't keep a database of what your voice sounds like. So if they they were looking for some sort of authorization just based on the word yes, well, the scammers could just say yes. Right. (laughs) I see the point. Yeah. So thanks, everybody, for writing in about that. Keep us straight. uh, If we uh, try, if we inadvertently pass along something that needs some attention, thanks for writing in and keeping us honest here. So my story this week, uh, this was sent in by one of our listeners. This is uh, someone named Nevin. He sent it in via Twitter. And he keeps getting offers of free Bitcoin from Elon Musk. Hmm. Now, we've spoken about uh, offers like this, I believe, previously from the Pope. This is a straightforward kind of scam where someone claims to be someone famous and they offer up all sorts of riches. But first, you have to send them a few bucks to show your good faith. Right. And of course, then you never get the money promised to you. So this one uh, reads, this is from Elon Musk, and there's a nice little picture of him there. And it says, I'm giving 10,000 Bitcoin to all community. Hmm. I left the post of director at Tesla. Thank you all for your support. Saboot. I decided to make the biggest crypto giveaway in the world for all my readers who use Bitcoin. And then it has a link. And basically it says that to verify your address, you have to send from 0.5 to 5 Bitcoin to the address below and you'll get from 5 to 50 Bitcoin back. Wow. That's big money. 0.5 Bitcoin is what? $3,500 right now, right? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. That's all you need to do. Send 0.5 Bitcoin. Right. So the thing about this is the the Twitter account being used has a verified check mark next to it. And what these crooks are doing is they're finding Twitter accounts that have credentials for, they find ones that aren't being used. Somehow they get control of them, even though it's been verified. And then they change the username to Elon Musk, but the, the, the Twitter account name doesn't change. Yeah, the Twitter handle stays the same. Right. And this has nothing to do with Elon Musk, the Twitter handle. Right. And then they promote the tweet. So they're actually putting in some money to, to put this scam out here. Hmm. Now They promote it. They promote it. And Twitter lets that happen. Well, that's what I want to get to. I don't understand 
why Twitter can't do a better job of filtering this. I mean, this is a well-known scam. So to me, computers are pretty good at filtering things. Yes, they're very good at that, actually. <laughs> so if, someone, if someone puts in a username of Elon Musk right, and starts sending out promoted tweets under right. that name, you'd think that there would be some way that Twitter could automatically flag that for review. Correct. That should go to the top of the list of things that need to be flagged anytime, for review. Anytime a verified user changes their Twitter handle or their display name, that should be investigated. I, I agree. Look at that. I agree. Because but, what's uh, the purpose of having a verified Twitter handle? You are who you say you are. Correct. Yeah. So you already don't have an interest in changing your display name or your Twitter handle. No, and you have to send in substantial documentation to get that check mark. Huh. I, I have tried and haven't been able to get it. I am also considering trying it for uh, one of my accounts, but... Yeah, you're not going to like it. I'm warning you. <laughs> the things that they want you to send in, you are not going to like it. Anyway, this scam has already earned uh, over $180,000 in Bitcoin. Wow, so people are actually sending money to the, to the Bitcoin addresses. They are. But uh, taking advantage of the familiarity people have with, with Elon Musk, and everybody knows he's a rich guy, so... Right. Hundred and eighty grand though, that that's no small potatoes. No, that's somebody having a very good payday. Yeah. So uh thanks for sending this in. Uh obviously one to look out for. You know, I, I doubt many of our listeners would fall for this sort of thing, but uh make sure you spread the word to your friends and family and uh make sure they're aware of this. Right. So that's what I've got. Joe, what's your story this week? So uh Dave, Halloween was a couple weeks ago. Yes, it right? was. So here in America, you know what it's time to start thinking about. It, it's Christmas time. <laughs> no, right. no, no, no. It is time for Thanksgiving. It is Thanksgiving time. It is not time for Christmas yet. Not according to the retailers, Dave. Oh, I know. <laughs> so actually, this one comes from Alice Woods over at twospyware.com. Okay. And she's talking about a MailGuard report. Now, MailGuard is a an Australian email filtering company. Mm. Uh, and it says that scammers have already started spreading fake emails that mimic DHL notifications about shipped goods. Oh, the shipping company DHL. Okay. Right, the international shipping company DHL. Right, right. I am so leery of these kind of scams that one time I actually ordered something from Europe and actually got a legitimate DHL notification. I was right. terrified to click on the link. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when I got home, my, my package of, of stuff was there and I was like, oh, that must have been real. But I didn't click on the link. The scam was noticed towards the end of December when Australians' email inboxes were flooded with messages containing uh, tracking numbers or various links and attachments and suggestions that users look at their tracking numbers on websites and other things. The subject line of these emails read DHL shipments AWB and contained a number, of course, that looked just like a tracking number. Right. It's fake. They also provided in this fake email some links where the alleged tracking information could be viewed. And when the user clicks on the provided link, the traffic is directed to a page that suggests people enter their email address or other information. Of course, the scam is to collect users' information. So here's the interesting part about this. Hmm. The sender is actually a, a DHL email address that looks like it's been compromised. Really? Right. So they got some business email compromise going on in here. I would like to think, although I don't know, that MailGuard notified DHL of this vulnerability and that DHL has fixed it. But I, I don't have that information. But I'm going to assume that MailGuard is an ethical company and that they've done this and that yeah. DHL is is taking care of their customers. So actually coming from a legitimate – Right. From inside the house, from so, inside DHL. Exactly. So they've hmm. gotten hold of – they've done some business email compromise and they, they've used that email address to send out a bunch of these, uh, a bunch of these messages right. that link to malicious sites and – to harvest people's credentials, huh. right? Now, there's all kinds of things that you can do with these kind of emails. You can you can send them to a site that 
that just collects their DHL login credentials. Now, that might not seem like a big deal. So what? Somebody gets my DHL tracking email. Well, what if you reuse the password, Dave, like mm. like, like I always tell you not to do? Right. But th- And that's also your email address and your password to your PayPal account. Well, that's mm-hmm. a problem. That's, that's really the goal of these credential harvesting things Yeah, is to not just compromise the one site, but then to move on to other sites that might have potential value. Yeah. And maybe even sell those credentials. Oh, absolutely. These yeah. credentials have, have value on the black market. Yeah. Um, well, so how do you look out for this? Uh, I mean, you've got a legit DHL email. Do you do like you did and just never trust anybody? <laughs> that's, <if> I... <laughs> that's, that's what you do, Dave. That's, I see. You've got to make sure you're going to the right website and not just making sure that the website is secure in terms of TLS because it's easy to obtain a TLS certificate and the website will look like it's secure even though it's not a bona fide website. So you got to watch the domain, watch the certificate, see who it is certifying Make sure that it's DHL, particularly with DHL, because they are such a large international shipper, they're going to be a big target for this kind of thing. So take the extra steps and just make sure if it's any shipping company sending you information, verify that you're on the right address, you know, hover over the link to see where it's taking you. Mm -hmm. What I do, and and this is me being uber paranoid, Dave. (laughs) You? Yeah. (laughs) I will right click on the link, Uh copy link location and paste it into a text editor and read it. Okay. That's what I do. I know what URL strings look like, though. The layperson may not know what a URL string, a query string looks like. Yeah. But if nothing else, just make sure it's going to the proper domain. Right. And as I say, if if you're if if it's a question, just just don't click the link. Go to the domain independently. If it's Agreed. DHL, go to DHL. That's a on great your way own to get without it. the link and. Yep. And then enter from there. Yeah. Copy the tracking number because the tracking number is probably not a link, right? So you can just copy the tracking number into their site and lo and behold, you'll have all the tracking information or you'll get a message that says this is an invalid tracking number. Right. All right. It's it's a good story, uh, but it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Favorite part. All right, Joe, we got a good one this week. This is from a gentleman who goes by the name Slab. Is that his hacker name? That is a nickname, I believe. And he is from Australia. And he wrote us and he said, Hi there, guys. Slab from Australia here. My daughter and I love your show and listen every week. Justin from OLD dropped your podcast on one of his episodes. I have no idea what that is, but I'll have to find out. Okay. Uh, I really look forward to Thursdays in Australia as I listen to your potty. I think that's Australian for podcast, Joe. I, I hope so. Yeah, on the way <laughs> on the way home from work. I recently had a friend contact request me via Facebook. I was already friends with him, and I thought that he must have cleared his account and was starting again. Mm-hmm. The profile pic was the same and had very few friends at the time I was requested. I checked out his name after I went through the conversation and found that he had two profiles. Aha! The conversation took place over four days with no contact from me for three of those days in between. All right, so Joe Slab sent us a transcript of the text message exchange that he had with the scammer. And I thought it'd be fun for you and I to read through them, but read through them using ridiculous Australian accents. Oh, (laughs) my Australian accent's terrible. This is going to be hilarious. Good. All right, I will begin. Hello, mate. How you doing? Hi, Dale. How you been? Well, I'm also doing pretty good. I've got some news to share with you, and I don't think you've heard it. Go for it. I was wondering if you heard about the Billy Melinda Gates Foundation program ongoing now. That I have. Oh, I thought you'd heard about it already. It's a new program. They're helping the young, old, retired citizen workers and non-workers, disabled or non-disabled. You can use the Bill and Melinda Gates Fund offer to pay your bills, college, school, medical expenses, business costs, or even personal use. Okay. 
It's an amazing program. I got $160,000 from them after I applied for the program and it was granted to me. Nice. You can also apply just like I did. That's awesome. How do I go about doing that? That wasn't the least bit Australian, Joe. I'm sorry. (laughs) That is the agent contact link to message me through Facebook. Text him and let him know you're ready to claim your winnings. They work 24 hours a day, so you'll surely reach him right now. Text him up now and let him know I give you his contact now that you're ready to claim your winning grant. Text him up now and let him know if you're able to reach him, okay? What did you claim it for? Once you applied and you're eligible, you have to claim your winning with the UPS delivery company. For your delivery, once shipping clearance and insurance fee are paid. How much should I claim? What did you claim for? You can claim any amount. Varies from $80,000, so I choose to claim $160,000 and paid $2,000 for my shipping clearance and insurance. Wow, that's amazing. Can I borrow two dollars so I can claim? And when I get my $160,000, k, I'll send it back. I quickly paid off some medical and other bill and have the rest fixed. I can only help with $1,000. 2K and I'm in. Thanks so much. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for your help. Text the agent now. Actually, I can send you my Bitcoin address and you can send it there. I will talk to the agent myself because I still have their info to make payment. Let me know at the point of your payment. Okay, send the money to this address. And then he lists the Bitcoin address in base 58. I will send you the money when I have received $1,000. Thanks again. You're my best friend. Bitcoin. Okay. Thanks again, friend. I'm still waiting for the transfer. Dale, you have my number. Please call to discuss further. And after that, there was nothing. I think I was doing the part of Slab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were doing the part of Slab. All so right. so what Slab played along here. That's great work, Slab. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> nice job, Slab. I apologize for our terrible, terrible terrible Australian <laughs> accents. I want to talk about one of the Mine things. was pretty much dead on. I, I don't uh, know what Slab, maybe okay. Slab will let us know. Mine was, mine was awful. I'll tell you that right now. I want to focus on one of the things this scammer said in this. He said, yeah, they're helping with the young, old, retired citizens, workers, non-workers, disabled, non-disabled. You can use the money. Okay. So everybody, everybody, right? <laughs> right? He tries to list a bunch of features that will include 100% of the population. Yeah. Are you young or old? Yes. I'm I'm one of those two things. Are you retired or citizens working or non-working? Yeah. I have to be one of those three things. Yeah. Well, brilliant on Slab's part to uh, try to get this guy on the hook for $2,000, whatever. Uh, way to turn it around. Right. So uh, nice to have some fun with him there. And, Absolutely. Uh, and good thanks work. for being a good sport as we had fun with your nationality. And so. thanks to you and your daughter for listening. I hope <laughs> yeah. that you continue to listen despite our terrible... That, that's right. Games. I hope everybody had a good laugh. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, uh, Slab from Australia. That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got Carol Terrio with her interview with Matt Gartner from Mimecast. And we are back. Joe, it's great to have our UK correspondent, Carol Terrio, join us once again. This week, she's got a conversation with Matthew Gartner from Mimecast. Let's have a listen. Well, Dave, Mimecast released a report called The State of Email Security. Inside this report, there were loads of juicy insights on how organizations cope with this onslaught of threats. For example, are you surprised that 50% said that phishing had increased or that almost 9 out of 10 organizations encountered threats borne by careless behavior? Even more interesting than that is that nearly 40% said that the organization's weak link was the CEO. 
Yeah, the CEO, the head honcho, arguably one of the people with the most to lose if the firm takes a public beating for security practices. Plus, isn't this the person with the final say on the cybersecurity budget? I just want to understand a bit more about how these CEOs increase cybersecurity risk rather than minimize it. And I reached out to Mimecast's Matthew Gardner for the lowdown. Matthew, thank you so much for chatting with Hacking Humans. Now, perhaps you can tell me a bit about the environment. You guys did some research. So what threats are hammering at the door and disrupting our networks? You know, in the last couple of years, obviously, ransomware has become a hot commodity. Most cyber attackers are money oriented. You know, you, you might read about, you know, nation states or, you know, other, other actors. But, you know, I think the, the general takeaway I would give to the audience is that, you know, it's like 99 out of 100 are in it for the money. And so anything that can be monetized, and obviously ransomware is sort of a classic now, is where most of the attacks are focused. So you're saying most of it is money-driven. And where are the weak points? So why are we still having this problem 20 years on? Well, I mean, yeah, our, our tech environment is more complicated. Attackers are more sophisticated. And, you know, the human, you know, which is apropos to this this podcast, is, is continues to be a weak link. So that's why you have things like phishing. And, uh, you know, drive-by downloads and those sorts of things is that it's the user, in many cases, in quote, inviting the attacker in. And that's really hard to overcome. Now, that's interesting. Do users do this, do you think, through ignorance or is it just disregard for the rules or is it mostly malicious behavior? Um, you know, there's, there's, we have a, a group that we call the Compromise Insider, which is sort of the, you know, they're just sort of naively doing what the attacker wants them to do. And then there's, there is an element mm -hmm. of careless where they should have known better, but didn't. And so there, it's a little blurry, obviously there, but at the end of the day, people are busy, you know, they're not technical, you know, they don't know what a domain or a URL or how to look at a URL and figure out that it's... Yeah, they got their own problems, don't they? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so attackers know that and they, they jump right in and, you know, they don't have to be successful all the time. They just have to be successful enough to make money. It's true. A lot of people in our industry often go, oh, how could the user be so silly falling for that? It's like, well, because it's not their focus. They're not thinking about it every day. They're kind of using the tool the way you, you might use your car. Yeah. I mean, we may look at the URL in, a, in an address bar, but you know, the, most of the world doesn't and doesn't know a domain from uh, their left elbow. According to your research, 90% uh, of global orgs have seen phishing attacks increase over the past year instead of decreasing. Yep. So obviously, you're thinking that's the money that's incentivizing that growth. Absolutely. It's actually kind of hard to hack, you know, to literally technically hack an organization that has some security controls. It's much easier to send in a request via email and have the user essentially invite them in or do something, you know, in response. Because, you know, an email that says, please change your wiring instructions for our account and pretends to be one of your vendors or customers. There's nothing malicious necessarily in it. It's it's the it's purely socially engineered. Right. And so you hit a busy person that is in the accounts payable department. And if it's a, related to a project or a vendor that they normally do business with, they might not think twice. And that's that's you know part of the problem is not thinking twice. It's like they're getting us in our weakest spot. We're really busy at work. We're distracted. We have too many messages and emails and phone calls to return. And one of these things slips through a net. And, you know, if we're not trained, I guess, or don't know to look for them, uh, we're sitting ducks. Yeah. And, you know, like anything, it, more training and understanding, obviously, and more caution amongst the users is a good mm -hmm. thing. 
there is, you know, there's tech you can you can use to help filter out these, you know, malicious requests. And then obviously, you shouldn't really have a business process that it has a single point of failure. You know, so you always should have some sort of yeah. some control, complementary control. Some redundancy as well, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of companies don't have all those three things going well. Oh, really? Is that right? So one of them is always weak. It's like two out of three rather than three out of three. Is that what you see? Well, maybe three of the three are weak. <laughs> They're not using tech. The users don't necessarily know, aren't discerning. And, you know, the business process has a single point of failure. And so... They're, they're the ones that, that get, bre- get breached or lose money or get into the news. So what I found really interesting about the research that Mimecast put out was that CEOs are often seen as a weak link in security. So something like 40% of your respondents said they saw their CEO as a cybersecurity weak link. Mm-hmm. That's huge. You know, in some ways, I mean, having been in security for, for uh, more than 15 years, I think that's probably progress. <laughs> but that that forty percent would have been much higher years ago. It feels bad, obviously, because forty percent is still a large number. You know, the the reason that CEOs are in quote the weak link is a they're they're useful in a fraud. So they're you know a figure of authority. Yeah. So if you're gonna if you're gonna impersonate somebody at a company, CEO is a pretty good choice. Maybe the CFO or there's a, a couple other people depending on what you're trying to do. So if you get an, in quote, get an email from the CEO, you're much more likely to go, whoa, wait a second. You know, I got to take this seriously. I got to act accordingly, you know, quickly, perhaps. But then they're also on the flip side, a point of attack. So if you're an attacker and you can get into the CEO's account or onto their machine, you're into the flow of the most sensitive data or information at a company. Yeah, that makes total sense, right? They're the big kahuna. They're the big fish. So it's a double-edged sword with them. And then you throw in the the issue of like a lot of CEOs are not technical. They didn't come from, you know, IT or whatever, security. There's a tendency, although I think it's slowly being drained out, but there's a tendency for them to, oh, security is IT's problem. Like there's some magical tech that will make us, you know, eliminate all risk. Where the more mature CEOs, you know, view cybersecurity as a risk and they treat it as a business risk and they invest accordingly. Just between you and me and our lovely listeners here, do you think there's an element of the I'm the head honcho, I do what I want attitude in some CEOs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, and it's your job to protect me, you know, exactly, just, no matter exactly. what I do. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, the whole thing of security is an IT problem, not a business problem. Mm. You know, they're busy people too, usually. And so a security control, not always, but often can be seen as getting in the way of doing business. And so it's not uncommon to hear a high-level executive sort of tell a mid-level IT person, you know, that's great for everybody else, but not for me. I can tell you a, a number of shareholders would not have happy faces if there was a breach at a company and, you know, the CEO was like, well, it's not my fault. It's the IT guy's fault. Right. Um, I don't know if that would fly very high. The world's become more sensitive to the reality. And so I think that's maybe why the it's only 40% of mm. people think their CEO undervalues the role of email and security. Now, you had a story about what happened to the CEO. Yeah, it's a classic fun one. So any security person always loves it when they're attacked by a very weak attacker because then you can have sort of sport with them. <laughs> so it, it, a very simple case, I got a, an email. I didn't get the email actually because our system filtered it, but I went into the into the back of our email security system and pulled the email out. And basically it was our CEO, not really, uh-huh. asking me 
that he had a really important thing for me to do and basically responded like, oh, Peter, how can I help you? And, then, and he responded back, well, I need iTunes cards. And I was like, oh, really? Well, is this for a customer event or a partner thing you're doing? Uh, yes, it's for that. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I need it right now. And I, and then of course I respond, oh, you know, should I use the corporate card and what expense code should I use when I'm submit the expense? And I say, yes, you should use the corporate card. And, and the, you know, I was just going on and on, you know, the longer it could go, the better. And unfortunately yesterday, my last response bounced. He, <laughs> so he figured it out. No, he, his email was taken down. Ah, there you go. So it's just, you know, that happens. It, it's obviously a completely obvious attack. I mean, if we didn't have an email security system, I wouldn't have fallen for it anyway. But, you know, you make that a little more sophisticated and you hide, instead of just doing display name, which is all he did, he just made his display name, Peter Bauer. Yeah. Instead, You know, you could register a similar domain and you could, you know, you could put a link to some you know, malicious site that he wanted me to go to, none of the things this guy did. You go from something that should be catchable by a person, there at the other end of the spectrum, there are malicious attacks that essentially have no chance to be detected by uh, an average user, but have a chance to be detected by tech. So when a malicious attack is targeting a C-level or a CEO person, I guess they obviously tailor their message appropriately. So would talk sure. maybe about investments or share opportunities or new board members or something like that. We met at this event and, you know, you presented at this thing and, yeah. you know, just, you know, literally someone, it could be completely legit. Someone could have been reaching out and, uh, you know, they, they take advantage of all that information. Now, what advice do you have for the C-suite? So I'm going to guess that most CEOs won't really be thinking about the fact that they're actually increasing, you know, dramatically, I bet in some cases, the risk um, or the exposure to risk that a company is facing. What kind of things would you say watch out for? Well, I mean, I hope they take a risk-based approach, first of all. I mean, it's IT's job to protect us. It's like anything in business is there's risk to doing business on the internet, of course. So you have to sort of weigh those out. And then also realize that there are there's information, data, systems, and people that are more attractive than others to certain okay. attackers. And so one of the things you should do is your your executives are generally more public, easy to find out where they are, what they do, you know, where they went to school, all that kind of stuff which is yeah. actually possible for pretty much anybody, but it's even easier with them, is you should put you know more monitoring and controls around the executives in particular, be a little bit more protective of them. Um, yeah. There's a number of other things, but that's, that's sort of a, a starter for you. And I guess from, from the IT standpoint, you know, having to deal with the CEO being a bit flagrant with security must be really frustrating. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, I guess you'd have to sort of impose controls like multi-factor authentication or uh, different ways to kind of have tech in place to just have a tertiary uh, hurdle for, for the bad guys to get over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want technical controls, you want, you know, awareness training that everyone would take, including the C-level folks. And you want, you know, the classic triumvirate, the business process to be no single point of failure. But on on your point of the, the CEO, a good CEO would say, I'm like everybody else. I, I should be holding to the security controls that everybody else is and probably even some more, but at least what everybody else is. Right. 
But it is, you know, if you've been a, a you know, low-level, mid-level IT or security person and your CEO is like, I need blah. Yeah. You're lower down in the organization. It's hard to push back. So, which is why you sort of need the board of directors, who, of course, the CEO works for, to have a kind of a security or risk management function on it and that have, you know, cybersecurity controls be part of the risk management that they perform. And thus, it, you know, it's sort of the tone at the top, the, the CEO is responsible for everyone below and, 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 and sets the tone at the top and also should have the same rules or even tighter ones, actually, than as everybody else. And then, then it becomes the cultural change, you know, the acceptance of these controls, you know, will go up. But it's definitely, it's not easy um, if you have somebody in that 40% that you know, doesn't value security as much as they should. So education for CEOs, don't think that you're above it because actually you're a prime target is what we're saying here. For sure. Because you have so much access to all the systems, you know, if they get your email. And how embarrassing when you have to announce this, basically make it public that you may have been breached. And it was your accounts that did it. You know, it came through your account when there's an yeah. investigation. Yep, for sure. Thank you so much, Matthew. This has been really enlightening. My pleasure. And I hope that there are CEOs out there who are listening to this who are thinking, hmm, maybe I should take heed. <laughs> you know, the, the, the understanding and awareness is much higher than it's ever been. But the, it's still complex. Uh, and that's, you know, sort of the frustrating part of security. There is no, there is no absolute answer. You just got to improve in all the three areas, you know, the tech, the, the people, and the, and the business processes, and make it all risk-based. This was Carol Terrio for the CyberWire's Hacking Humans. Joe, what do you think? I think that was an excellent interview. Yeah. Uh, Matthew said something that resonated with me because I mentioned this in the, earlier on in the podcast mm -hmm. today, that many people may not know what a domain is mm. and how to verify a domain. Right. Uh, so next week, I think I'm going to talk about that, how to make sure that a link in, a, in an email is a valid link yeah. or a, a legitimate link. Right, right. Some of the things to look out for. Correct. Yeah. So... I really like his discussion on why CEOs are the weakest link mm -hmm. uh, or why 40% of people say they are. They are a person in authority. If yep. I can compromise the CEO of a company, then I have the keys to the kingdom. Right. That's great. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, from a from an attacker perspective, not not great from a humanitarian or other, other yeah. perspective, yeah. but CEOs may not be too technical. Right. That's they may true. come from a business background. These companies that get established by technical people, one of the things that happens when, when they get venture capital funding is they get removed from the CEO position and someone who is good at managing a business is put in. Right. Right. So the technical person is no longer the CEO. And that is probably okay, right? But the CEO needs to have some kind of understanding. What really struck me is when Matthew was talking about how many CEOs may think that security is an IT problem and not a business problem. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me of two separate quotes from Bruce Schneier, hmm. world-renowned security expert. Yeah. The first one is, security is a process, not a product. Hmm. Okay, So there's no product that IT is going to have that's going to secure your business and any process is going to involve you, the CEO. Mm -hmm. And the other quote from Bruce Schneier is, if you think technology can solve your security problems, then you don't understand the problems and you don't understand the technology. Hmm. So CEOs should be aware of that. Yeah. They should absolutely be aware of that. And they should be thinking about if they have this mindset, then they really need to reevaluate and understand what the risk is and what the problem is. Yeah. You know, it's been my experience, too, uh, working with various CEOs that in a lot of cases, they're kind of coddled. 
Right. You yeah. know, they have people working around them and, and making because their their time is so valuable that they have people just taking care of all of the little things of the day to day so that they can use their time, you know, the way that it's best used. But but that and their time is valuable. It, it, yes, that is absolutely true. But right. it, it can lead to a, a sort of, I guess, a learned helplessness of right. a shortcutting of uh, of the process. Right. Right. And and like Matthew said, you sometimes you have CEOs who say, I'm not going to do that. I don't have time for that. No, I, you, you know, I don't have time for that. You, and you well, should not be violating the security process. Right. Right. Um, well, if you don't have time for that, do you have time to stand uh, in front of the press and uh, tell everyone why? <laughs> right. Uh, all of your users' uh, personal information has been breached right, because exactly. that's, that's where you could end that's up. What's gonna, that's what's going to happen next. Yeah. So I have a friend who used to say when we were working together, he would say that as you move up the corporate structure, your permissions should become more and more restrictive. Hmm. Unfortunately, that's never what happens. But it is what kind of should happen. Maybe the CEO is too busy to worry about these things. Well, maybe the CEO should have somebody, an assistant, who goes through their email who is astute at these kind of things. Those kind of checks can can really go a long way to save the CEO time and to provide protection. Yeah, some some real live human filtering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.